Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein A Go-Go, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein A Go-Go's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein A Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to us on this great Sunday. We have a big show uh, coming up. We're going to be talking about malaria. We're going to be talking about World Brain Day, and we're going to be talking about someone who's doing some talking to someone who's doing some amazing work with sculptures uh, later in the show as well. But first up, of course, I have uh, my team for today uh, dialing in via Zoom. Good morning, Dr. Laura. Good morning, Dr. Shane. How are you going? I'm doing well. And we have uh, Crystal on the line. Dr. Crystal, how are you going? Good morning, Dr. Shane. It's great to be joining you for some more science on a Sunday. I like the fact you have the quintessential bookshelf in the background. That's becoming the, the, the stay of all of us in our Zoom calls. I know. I like the rise of rate my Zoom background. Like yeah. People are looking at you know the uh, the quality of your background but uh, i've gone with the bookcase and photograph on the wall kind of which makes for great radio i'm sure yeah oh it's great radio great radio. and we also have a new um our astro person who is is beaming in from uh should i say clean geelong good morning anu how are you going good morning shane how's it going oh really good and your background is some space uh, schematic of a uh, launch to mars i suspect which we will talk That's about right it is a just it a is few a journey minutes. to Mars. Journey to Mars, very good. Now, we uh, start off with some news today. So, uh, Dr. Laura, what's uh, interested you? <laughs> well, um, I'm kind of interested in eating quite a lot at the moment. You know, oh, yeah. it's a new big, bigger part of my life than usual. So, I was really into finding a story on competitive eating this week. And so, um, if you guys haven't read the story, and I'm hoping you're not, so you, you, know, you can't give away the answer... I want to ask you guys, how many hot dogs, theoretically, do you think you could eat in 10 minutes? Oh. I'm going to go five. Five? Okay. <laughs> Without throwing up, I think I might get through two. What about a competitive eater? How many do you think they could eat? Oh, uh, at least three a minute, uh, four or five a minute, so maybe 50. Ten. So apparently, well, 10 is what the average person can eat, but if you are a competitive eater... You, you, you're sort of, um, your digestive system becomes so plastic and extreme that apparently you can eat 83 hot dogs in 10 minutes. And this was published this week in Biology Letters. So, um, <laughs> what are you laughing at, Shane? I, I just think this that's is a, disgusting. This is, a, this is a legitimate study. And actually, yeah. it's actually, even though like I kind of had a laugh when I first read it, it's actually really interesting to find out how flexible the human body can be. So, um, in this study, researchers analysed almost 40 years of data from Nathan's famous hot dog eating contest. Now, this is something you may not have heard of, but most Americans have heard of this. It's serious big business. It's every July the 4th, and it's on Coney Island. This year, of course, it was um, a socially distanced. It was just a televised event. But um, And this is run by Major League Eating. There is like an actual like league competition for eating. It's serious, serious big business. So using this data with established models of gut plasticity, they measured the number of hot dogs plus eating speed to calculate an active consumption rate. And the results showed that today's elite eaters, compared to eaters in the 1980s, have had a rise in active consumption rate of more than 700%. 
and there is just no other sport in the, like ever mm. that has had such an extreme rise in performance. So if you think of like you know best marathon runner in the world or sprinter, and compare that to the average person, say if the average person can eat. 10 hot dogs at best. Oh, and I've watched how they do it. They soak them in water so they can really just swallow them straight in. It's fascinating to watch. You simply must. And uh, <laughs> it sounds doing. disgusting, yeah, right. Laura. <coughs> it really sounds exactly. disgusting. What is more disgusting is when you see what happens to the stomach. It's completely amazing. So the reason why there has been such an increase um, in, you know, the extremity of this competitive eating is due to training. So, um, with competitive eaters, gastroenterologists at UPenn have looked at the capacity of the stretching of their stomach. And the stomach has such an enormous capacity for stretching that the food stays in the stomach. It doesn't enter the intestine. And you basically have this flaccid bag of a stomach. And that is like specific to a competitive eater. And apparently it never really sort of goes back to normal. And so when we think about these competitions, you might just be having this vision of your mind of like, a relatively obese person chowing down all these hot dogs on Coley Island. But that's not the case anymore. Now these people are actually extremely fit, extremely lean and muscly. And it. it's because you actually don't want fat around the stomach because it's got to blow up. It actually pushes all the organs out of the way. It is like mm. completely disgusting. Mm. And it actually pushes your lungs up. So you're, one of the kind of um, problems here can be shortness of breath. Just because it's shoving all your organs out the way. And so if you take a competitive eater, you say, how many liters of water can you drink? And a lot of the training is actually with water. These people can guzzle 4.5 liters of water in under two minutes. You or I, if we're not in training, or if these guys are not in training, it's, it's under a liter. Well, wow. so, yeah, well, I, I just I got a. I wonder if there's a Morgan's law for um for hot dog eating, like whether or not it will approach an asymptote, which <laughs> yeah. we will never be able to go um higher. Well, eighty three is the absolute limit they suggest, and this record, the record for this year, was only seventy five by the thirteen time reigning champion Joey Chestnut. Joey Jaws Chestnut, and he only got 75 this year, wow. and that was the world record. So he's still got a few more to he's chow down. He's got a few down, more to chow so. down. Well, I just got a very yeah. excited text, Laura, from my partner, who you know is American. She said, this is very famous. She knows a lot about it. I think she wants it me to compete. It is very famous. And so I'm as, not doing an, as an American, she's probably heard of um, Kobayashi, who's a Japanese guy who's one of the world's best competitive eaters. And he faced off against a grizzly bear live on TV. How many people, you know, how many hot dogs can you eat? you know, Japanese champion Kobayashi or a grizzly bear. And in the rehearsals, he, the, he won. And on TV, the grizzly bear won. Oh. But according to this modeling now, apparently humans could out-eat a grizzly bear. Very exciting. Head-to-head. -head. Very, Very exciting. exciting. Laura, you've had a good week researching that one. Dr. Crystal, what do you got for us? <laughs> well, um, I'm going to take a little uh, different spin towards um, genome editing, a very exciting paper that I saw um, uh, published in uh, Nature around the fact that we, for the first time, scientists have been able to actually precisely target the genome um, and modif edit, edit the genome in our mitochondria. So um, you may have heard of genome editing for our uh, genome in our nucleus. So inside the cell, most of our most of our DNA is wrapped up in the, in the nucleus, in our nuclear DNA, which is where most of our, our genes are. However, we have these little subcellular organelles called mitochondria, which actually have their own genes. So they have around 
uh, 37 genes um, and um, and some of these genes are involved in uh, very important body processes for like energy metabolism and um, and other sort of the sort of thought of like the power generation generators for our cells. And, and while we've had great tools to do very precise gene editing on our nuclear genome, those tools haven't been able to be able to work in our little mitochondria because the mitochondria is surrounded by two membranes. And it's very hard for those molecular tools that normally edit the, the nuclear genome to be able to access the mitochondria. However, and this is a really fascinating story about the value of really basic fundamental science. A discovery came from some scientists at the University of Washington in Seattle who wanted to understand bacterial toxins. They wanted to understand how bacteria fight other bacteria. So they were looking at bacterial wars to see who could win bacteria ecosystem dominance at a bacteria to bacteria level. And they discovered this toxin that was really effective with a great name, DDDA. So DDDA, is this enzyme needs a better name need to work on that but um but they found out the way in which this bacterial toxin worked was by modifying the dna and turning one of the base pairs one of the little dna code elements from a c to a t and that was actually toxic and gave them a, a competitive advantage however the researchers thought oh this is a really cool tool. You know, how else could it be used? And they reached out to some of their collaborators at the Broad Institute um, on the other side of America and said, oh, do you reckon we could use this for mitochondrial DNA? And they went, yep, let's see what we can do to pimp this protein. So they did some really cool protein engineering on this um, bacterial toxin and they zooped it up um, and turned it into um, a molecular tool that we can now use to edit mitochondrial DNA. Mm. And why is this interesting? Because some of those genes, those 37 genes in our little mitochondria that are involved in energy, when there's mutations in those genes, they can actually result in quite serious um, clinical conditions. You know, if you can't generate lots of energy, we see diseases in the skeletal muscles, cardiac and heart problems, you know, even some diseases that cause blindness and deafness. And it's been really difficult to understand how these changes in our mitochondrial DNA actually manifest in disease. But now we can manipulate those um, genes in the lab. We can create new models to study mitochondrial disease and then hopefully be able to get a better understanding of the biology behind those diseases for the future. So mm. it's a really great example of how some fundamental basic research that was done on bacterial toxins, which seemingly has nothing to do with any clinical application, has now created really great tools mm. to be able to advance our knowledge of human health. Yeah, no, that's great stuff. It's good to hear. I hadn't heard of that until just this week when we were discussing it. That's really exciting that they've managed to make that breakthrough. Thank you, Dr. Crystal. Now, a new uh, the obsession with Mars continues, I suspect, with another launch this week. What's going on? Absolutely, Shane. So the United Arab Emirates are attempting to place an orbiter into the atmosphere of Mars in order to study weather patterns and also the atmosphere. So what they're hoping to determine is historically how has Mars's atmosphere changed over time? And I suppose like more seasonal impacts of what's actually occurring, the elements present, how has that changed in the history of Mars itself? It's really quite interesting. It will be the first interplanetary mission for the United Arab Emirates. And also uh, they'll be launching next week between the 19th and the, 20th, and the 19th and the 23rd. I don't even know what date it is anymore. Um, next week and they will be uh launching out of japan and you are able to um find that online and watch that live on nasa tv as well so they'll be using three instruments a high resolution camera um a couple of spectrometers and 
yeah, it's a, it's a hexagonal prison this time, and that's going to be quite nice, and it's solar powered. Hmm. So it, it's interesting because there hasn't been a lot of success with non-NASA launches to Mars over the years, has there? I think almost every single other nation has failed. Is that right? Actually, India um, launched the Mang- Mangalayan into orbit on their first attempt. So that right. was an orbit. Place it into orbit, which I think is like amazing because that yeah. requires some fantastic physics and mathematics mathematicians. Um, but yeah, I think you know we we have. I think that there are a few orbiters around Mars currently. Mm. A lot of them are NASA, and they are studying various things. Of course, the rovers are able to. I think the rovers are my favorite. They're super cute. Of they have like a little personality of their own, and um, they are able to determine. I guess what's really more important. Like, well, yeah. you know, what is really more important to us: the atmosphere or the surface of Mars. Which I think, equally, if we're trying to place humans on Mars, um, we need to have a full understanding of what we're dealing with and how Mars could change in the future as well. Yeah. So not just. Mars, but what can we expect? Yeah. I love the way you describe the rovers as super cute. One of the things I loved about the Curiosity rover was that it was designed to be capable of actually driving over the previous two rovers. I thought that was a really good technical fact that you know it's so much bigger that it was it had to be able to drive over a rock equivalent to the size of um, what was it, Opportunity and Spirit, the other two rovers. So you imagine, I, I'm not sure if they field tested that with some mock-ups of the old rovers and just say, yeah, we can drive over the old one. This thing's a monster truck. Um, and yeah. per- Perseverance is quite large, the new rover that's being designed as well, isn't it, I think? That's right. I do believe it is about the same size, if not larger than mm. Curiosity. Um, looking forward to seeing how that all pans. I think that's happening later this year. August, yep. I think. Yeah. Um, so looking forward to that. And I, I do believe that Doug and Bob are on their way back from the space station as well. Oh, so yeah. quite a few launches, yeah. quite a few exciting yeah, there's a lot going on. There's a lot going on. And I know there's a uh, – we, we don't have time to talk about it, but there's a wonderful comet that has appeared um, neo-wise, which is in the northern hemisphere. God damn it. It's, we got screwed. Um, but it looks magnificent. Look it up, folks. There's some really beautiful pictures. And it'll be back, though. So don't, if you missed it this time, it, it will be back, won't it, Anu? Like That's right. In 6,800 years. So it's yeah. another lifetime. <laughs> Well, you know, I'm getting my, I'm arranging to get my brain put into an Android body. So I'll be cool. And we'll see it next time, hopefully in the Southern Hemisphere. But the pictures of it are spectacular. Also a beautiful stream from the International Space Station of Comet Neowise as well. Yeah, yeah. It's worth checking out. You can use that. No, it's all good. Well, guys, I'm going to have to leave it there for news because we've got some guests lining up, no doubt, in uh, the the virtual queue. Um, Good to see all three of you. And we'll chat again very soon. Thanks so much. Good to see you, Shane. Thanks, Shane. Thanks, guys. Folks, we're going to take a break for some music, and when we'll be uh, when we come back, we'll be talking about World Brain Day in just a few minutes. Triple R. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Gogo on Three Triple R. On the line now, we have Professor Tissa Wicharatni from Western Health and the University of Melbourne. He's been on the show before. Good morning, Tissa. Good to see you. Good morning, Shane. Thank you for having me. Good morning to all our listeners uh, across Victoria and across, across Australia. Um, it's uh, it's great to have, last time we had you in. It was for in particular for World Brain Day, which I know is coming up in just a couple of days on the twenty second of July. And at the time, the focus was on migraines, um, but this year it's on Parkinson's disease. Give us a bit of a flavour of you know where things are at with Parkinson's and um, and what it does to the body and so forth. 
Shane and our listeners, uh, we are in this in the middle of this unprecedented COVID-19 pandemic. However, I have to remind the listeners and you that Parkinson's disease uh, in itself uh, is a pandemic also, despite it is not an infectious disease. Mm. During the last 30 years, we have seen a tripling of Parkinson's disease all over the world. We are running the Parkinson's uh, disease uh, with an ambitious agenda to end Parkinson's disease this year in collaboration with the Movement Disorder Society because we want to see the stop stoppage of uh, this carnage. We can't, uh, we can't uh, deal with uh, another tripling of uh, Parkinson's disease worldwide within the next 20 years. Uh, we, at this point of time, there are over 7 million people worldwide. Uh, there are probably close to 250,000 patients uh, across Australia according to global burden disease data calculation, if things are correct. Uh, and this is on the rise. Uh, we have to do something now. Otherwise, uh, we are going to face uh, massive mm. problems. Hence the, the, the theme Parkinson's disease this year. Yeah, I suppose most people would be aware of one of the most famous cases being Michael J. Fox. And seeing how he has managed to live with this disease, this is something that progresses over a very tr- protracted period, right? Uh, correct. Uh, there are a lot of other fa- famous people also. I think you, you hit the nail on the head uh, uh, showing uh, Michael J. Fox. Uh, if uh, Triple, J, Triple R listeners, uh, the Google Michael J. Fox uh, famous quotes, uh, he's a fighter. He built this massive uh, foundation under his name and which basically churning out uh, PhDs by themselves. Uh, mm. Finding a cure for Parkinson's disease. That's the attitude that uh, I would like all Parkinson's disease patients to have. We must fight this. We might end this, uh, and we might fight this uh, positively. Mm. And give us a bit of a flavour of what happens to the body when someone gets Parkinson's disease, because I think there's the the sort of very the common perception of the tremors and so forth. But this this ravages most of the body, right? Absolutely, Parkinson's disease is a whole body disease. Uh, broadly speaking, the the symptoms of Parkinson's disease or the effects of Parkinson's disease can be divided into two parts, motor parts and non-motor parts. So it basically affects uh, almost everything that we do from non-motor angle, from constipation, waking up in the middle of the night to pass the urine, having fe- being feeling sleepy, tired, the list go on and on and on and on. Those are the non-motor symptoms. Mm. And motor symptoms-wise, uh, people are very familiar, the tremor, the stiffness, uh, the balance problems, uh, uh, and uh, the falls uh, as disease progresses uh, into number of years. But there are some good news also. The bad news as well. Let's start with good news. Uh, I think over the last uh, 30, 40 years, uh, we come up with uh, a whole bunch of uh, treatment uh, paradigm for Parkinson's disease. Compared to migraine, most of this treatment is available for Australian patients uh, through Medicare-funded regime. Yep. Even to, even to the most late stage of the disease, uh, medical as well as uh, surgical. Uh, the, the, the negative thing is, uh, despite uh, we being a well-developed country, I still see undiagnosed Parkinson's patients every couple of months, uh, uh, even in Melbourne. So the, 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 there is a lot of... Uh, uh, neglect uh, and lack of recognition of these symptoms, especially as we get older, most people think that it is okay to have a little bit of tremor. It is okay to have a little bit of stiffness. It is okay to be slow. It's part of the normal aging. I'm not saying that every 
person who is out there having a little bit of tremor or slow is suffering from Parkinson's disease. But if you do have Parkinson's disease, that can be treated very well to control the symptoms, at least the initial five to 10 years with reasonable success. So if you are experiencing any one of these symptoms, I think it is important to get it checked with your family doctor to begin with, and then ideally meet a neurologist with special interest in Parkinson's disease as you would get a better deal from them. Mm. Now, there, there are so many of these diseases that we see, uh, you know, there's um, a range of neurological diseases that affect us in, in various ways. That are, it seems similar on the surface, but I, I suspect they're quite different. You know, if we, we think of even things like um, forms of epilepsy and, and, and various other motor neuron diseases and so forth, they all seem to have similar effects on the body, but they're, they're, they're quite distinct, aren't they? Is there, is there anything linking them or are these quite distinct conditions? Absolutely, there, there, there is one common theme for all these things. Uh, although we have not proven this scientifically, I am of the personal belief that when human brain fails, you and me both know human brain is the most sophisticated computer with over 100 billion biological electrical wires in it and mm. over 100 trillion connections in it. We talked about this last year. And when our brain fails, uh, either temporarily or intermittently or long term, I think the final common pathway, although it might show different manifestations, there is something common to them. I think it is up to us, uh, the research community, to partner with our patients uh, and bring them uh, the, together to unravel these mysteries and find solutions. Uh, say, for an example, you mentioned motor neuron disease. I believe uh, the things like uh, motor neuron disease, uh, Parkinson's disease, uh, Alzheimer's dementia, and uh, even late stage of multiple sclerosis uh, or even uh, the, the diseases, rare diseases like uh, mad cow disease or brain the, the spongiform encephalopathies. There's, some, there's common thing in, in this is uh, uh, there are proteins uh, in our brain which uh, get misordered and start uh, depositing and disrupt uh, some of the networks that we mentioned before. Yep. So if, if you find the mystery behind that, Hey, what is causing this uh, misfolding? Is there a way to put them back to where where it would have been, or is there a common theme on it? These are things that we need to understand, mm. and this is why it is critically important that uh, we have to uh, we have to push uh, our government, despite uh, in the middle of a pandemic, uh, to support medical research. Uh, and this is critically important. I must uh, remember your listeners. Uh, if we go back to plague uh, or or HIV, for that matter. Last year itself, uh, USA funded HIV-related research with uh, three billion US dollars, uh, whereas they allocated, I think, I believe, uh, two hundred million dollars US dollars to Parkinson's disease research. Mm. But HIV, this money didn't come easily. People had to basically fight hard and run campaigns in Washington DC, basically hijack pharmaceutical companies and sleep on the floor, protest. uh, pushing them to work hard on treatment. Unfortunately, we really need to get people woken up and promote this agenda. And advocacy is critically important for us to find this place and find this common ground and finally put the nail on the coffin. Yeah. Save yeah. most of these main disorders. They're very common. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a very important message, and I think many of these diseases require a lot more support than they're they're currently getting. But before I let you go, um, you're a frontline healthcare worker, a neurologist out at Western Health. I mean, how has how has life changed um, quickly? You know, for you with regards to the pandemic, I mean, you still must have the same number of patients coming in for neurological treatment that you've always had, but the, the you know the hospital system is very different. How 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 have you been going there? We, we, we basically rely on solidarity and common team. We wanted to help our patients as best as we can, no matter what. But we are also working hard to protect patients as well as our healthcare workers. For us, this is war, and we are the soldiers of this war, and we have to fight this war together. It is tough, but we are doing our very best. And my plea to the listeners is... Please respect this virus. This is not a joke. Uh, and uh, we, we practice your physical distancing. Practice your hand hygiene. Do not go out uh, without wearing a mask. Uh, don't worry about the scientific haji-baji. Uh, you wear a mask uh, and you basically protect uh, you spreading virus to others and you protect yourself also. Wear a mask uh, when you go out, uh, but it is not the only thing. Wash your hands religiously and uh, practice uh, physical distancing uh, and just listen to our leadership uh, from BHS and political board. Yeah. We have to stick together to fight this uh, this yeah. uh, invisible enemy. Yeah, good message, Tyson. And I like I like your comment on the mask. I mean, the scientific back and forth on this, and various governments back and forth on whether you should do it or whether you shouldn't, and so forth, really is irrelevant. The downside of wearing one if you don't need it is zero. The upside of wearing it if you do need it is huge. So it it, it needs to be a much simpler message: just wear it when you go out, stay at home as much as you can, and you know do all the other things that have been recommended. Tissa, great talking to you. Good luck with World Brain Day. I'm sure people can find on the web very easily I, I google it in a second it's very easy to find it's on july 22nd take care my friend and um we'll chat to you again at some stage soon thank you very much shane please invite your listeners to drop into world federation neurology website download the toolkit and post it to their member of parliament uh, their, the the council uh, the yep spread the word out we have to end parkinson's disease sounds like a good plan thank you tissa we'll talk again soon triple r Uh, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR. We have our second guest on the line now. Her name is Coralie Boulay. She is a PhD student in the Department of Physiology, Anatomy and Microbiology out at La Trobe University. Coralie, good morning. Good morning, Shane. It's great to have you. Um, I found out that you won a little competition out at La Trobe during the week, which is why I asked you to come on the one of the three-minute thesis programs. Tell us about that. Yeah, exactly. So um, this is a competition that happens every year where PhD students are asked to summarize all their research in only three minutes, which is very difficult. Um, You also have to um, summarize it in a way that is understandable for, you know, everyone. So think about explaining your very technical research to, I don't know, your grandma or a friend that doesn't work at all in your in your field. Hmm. Well, it's a great it's a great uh, thing to to win these competitions because they give you a bit of a you know a bit of a boost out in the social media realm and 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 that's where I found you. And we thought we'd we'd have a chat about your work because it's very interesting. You work in malaria, and we've had many many guests over the years uh, looking at malaria. But I thought yours was particularly interesting because it sort of took a slightly different approach. Uh, first of all, just 
a comment from you with regards to the repurposing of some of the malaria drugs for COVID. Has that kind of gone off the boil now? Is that sort of something that's been seen as not as successful or is it still happening? So the repurposing of the antimalarial hydroxychloroquine um, has had quite a lot of, uh, of chats a few, mm. probably a few months ago. Um, I think it has sort of uh, dwelt back uh, a bit now, um, but the idea of repurposing drugs that have already been you know, approved for, for some diseases is really interesting because if you manage to prove and, and show that uh, a drug that is already approved um, has a really good effect on another disease, uh, it can allow to really cut down the, the time to mm. develop a new drug and you know that it's already not uh, not toxic because it's uh, it's been approved for other conditions. So mm. it's a very interesting idea. Yeah. In fact, I might get you to just talk us through some of this because at the moment we're hearing a lot about vaccine development and so forth. And a lot of the information being put out to the public is frankly useless because it, it talks about, you know, stages of, of trials and so forth. And people don't understand that. So talk us through what those stages are of development in, in terms of a drug. Like what, what does each stage mean and, you know, about how long does that take? So I'm not really a specialist in the clinical trials phase. I'm really in the more the basic science. So I guess the first the first stage would be to um, identify a compound. So that would be maybe with a chemist um, looking at uh, maybe. So it, we work in the lab with uh, with parasites. So we mm -hmm. can uh, grow these parasites entirely in the lab without any any uh, animal models. Then maybe we'll try to uh, improve this drug uh, and try them in uh, animals. Um, and then slowly you can have phase one, phase two, phase three, phase four trials um, where uh, you maybe test the toxicity and the availability of the drug in humans. So like when you inject, ingest um, a drug, how is, it, uh, how is it found in the body? Is it discarded from the body? Uh, is, it, um, is it useful in this condition or this condition? Um, yeah, so it takes it takes years and years and years. Yeah, I like that idea that you have to actually go and determine whether or not the the drug is actually safe for us to take. I mean, at that level, it's probably not even effective against the disease or the virus that you know it's being used for. It's just to determine will this thing kill me on its own, right? Exactly. Yeah. So that's obviously a very important thing to do. Mm. Um, you can do that at first, maybe in the in the lab, so on human cells, but not in a in a whole human. Uh, to see if it kills the uh, human cells. Um, but then, uh, yeah, at some point, you also have to test the toxicity in, uh, in humans. So maybe starting with low dosage um, to see what, what's happening. Yeah. So now in your work, where you're, you're working on malaria, and there are, there are concerns at the moment, as I understand it, that some of the malaria drugs we've been using sort of, you know, moderately effectively for many, many decades are starting to lose that effectiveness. What's happening there? Yeah, so... All the drugs that have been uh, developed um, uh, for malaria, uh, the, so the malaria is caused by a parasite, uh, and the parasite has, you know, mutated and evolved um, and is becoming resistant to all the drugs that we currently have. And even the, the current frontline treatment, which is uh, artemisinin, um, is starting to lose its efficacy. So the parasite is not yet resistant to artemisinin, but yeah, it's very worrying because if if the parasite becomes resistant to this frontline treatment, 
uh, then we sort of have nothing left. Mm. So there's, uh, you know, my understanding from your, your work is there are two options there. One is the repurposing of drugs, which either you're obviously looking into, but the other was um, fairly exciting. We haven't talked a lot about that on the show was the idea of doing things to our own cells. Why would we want to take that path? Yeah, so I also propose to target our own cells, which can sound a bit dangerous. Um, but here I need to talk a bit about the, the microbiology of the, of the malaria parasites. So in humans, the malaria parasite lives inside our red blood cells. So our red blood cells are really the home of, uh, of the parasite. So the idea is instead of targeting the malaria parasite directly, um, to actually target uh, molecules from our own red blood cells that the parasite would need to maybe to invade and then to grow and multiply. Hmm. And so, so the advantage... Oh, sorry. Yeah. yeah, no, no, go ahead, go ahead. So the advantage of targeting molecules, not from the parasite, but from our own cells, is that the parasite would really struggle to develop resistance because it can mutate its own genes. It can, you know, it can shift its own shape, but it cannot have influence of over our own genes mm. are we talking essentially about the the sort of fuel that the parasite needs to to make its own changes here it's not like it's incorporating our, our dna or anything into itself this is just literally like the fuel and things that it uses to reproduce yeah uh yeah so for instance the malaria parasite eats a whole lot of hemoglobin so the mm. a protein that is very, very abundant, more than 90% of the proteins in red blood cells are hemoglobin, and that's what gives the, the color of the red blood cells. Um, but, but it also needs, you know, receptors on the surface of the red blood cells to invade. Uh, and then what I'm looking at at the moment is once it's inside of the red blood cell, uh, it might also need some other molecules that are a bit less known, um, or their role are, are completely unknown in the red blood cell, because red blood cells are very special cells that don't have a nucleus, that don't have a mitochondrion, um, so, yeah, th there are lots of molecules that we don't know what they are supposed to do in red blood cells, and, and we think that we have found a few of these molecules that might be required by the parasites to live, but we don't know, we don't know why at the moment. Mm. It's interesting. Now, I'm, I'm hoping the answer to this is just a clear no, but we never find the parasites in any other cells, do we? Is it just the red blood cells? So um, when the mosquitoes uh, bites us, uh, an infected mo mosquito bites us, the parasite travels uh, all the way to the liver. So mm. first it actually replicates inside the liver. Um, it replicates, 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 and then it bursts and, uh, and then it's found in the blood. The liver stage are not symptomatic. So up until, you know, a few days, you don't know that you're sick because you don't have any symptoms. Yeah, look, it, it's it's such a, a fascinating parasite. I mean, I, I know we've had so many guests and, and Dr. Crystal, one of our co-hosts, you know, did a lot of work in this area when she was at the Walter and Liza Hall Institute years ago. So I think malaria is one of the areas we've talked about so much on the show. It's it's fascinating. Really good to hear these different approaches coming through. Now, Coralie, before I let you go, I want to talk to you briefly about what it's like to be a PhD student during a time of pandemic i mean uh, you know what's happening are you able to go into the lab have you just had to work from home what what are you what are you doing so it's uh, it's very tough um especially being international students i guess mm. um i was lucky in the sense that very early on when the lockdown started um we decided with my supervisor to stop any experiments and just start working on my thesis i'm at the end of, uh, of my uh, phd right. Um, and we were able to, you know, uh, bring the computer and the desk chair back home. So I have a comfy, comfy spot to work. 
Um, and yeah, I don't need to go back to the lab. And if I needed to, I just couldn't. So for now, in La Trobe University, um, there are only a, you know, a few people per, per lab that are allowed back. Mm. Um, so yeah, it, it will be very tough um, for people who, who, have to, you know, who need to have uh, experiments done. Um, and also, I guess the prospects of afterwards is very scary because at the moment, yeah, it's not looking so good for us. Yeah. And um, how, how are things back in your, your home uh, in Fran- France, I'm assuming? Yeah, France. Um, I think it's going all right. Um, all my family and friends are safe. So that's, you know, that's been mm. a huge relief. And we've been actually more in contact uh, these past few months than we have ever been. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> mm. But I think it's, it's going all right. I'm not sure if they are facing a second wave and facing another lockdown again. But yeah, we'll see in the coming weeks. Yeah. And w- when are you planning on submitting your thesis? Uh, hopefully in end of August or early September. Right, so not far off. Well, look, uh, it's been great talking to you and, and thanks so much for, for making the time and, and congratulations on, on winning one of the uh, three-minute thesis programs out there at La Trobe. That's, that's a, a great accolade. I think um, doing live radio is a, a, a tad different. Um, you, don't, you don't get to use any slides for a start, so that, that always makes things different. But um, it, it's really good work that you're doing there on, on malaria and I hope it continues and that this second option of, of getting out, you know, really love whenever we talk about getting our own body to be the defense against these things because i think that's a a much smarter way to go that that you know presumably these things won't be able to build up resistance to that which is you know yeah, probably right. a smart way to go um Coralie, thank great, you very great much to for chat. the invitation and uh yeah thanks so much and good luck with the finishing of your thesis in the next few months thank you very much see you so yeah, um, folks, uh, that was uh, Coralie Bouet, and she's from uh, from France, obviously, but working out at La Trobe University in the Department of Physiology, Anatomy, and Microbiology. We're going to take a break in just a moment for uh, some important station announcements, and then we'll be back with our final guest uh, in just a few minutes. Triple R. Welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Go-Go on 3RRR. How's it going? Uh, now, I wanted to mention that an important uh, prize available to you if you are interested in learning. Uh, we have one double pass for six months of free streaming of DocPlay. We've given a few of these out over the last months. Um, now, they have quality stories. DocPlay is Australia's most comprehensive curated streaming service for documentary films and series. They cover topics like history, political Um, arts, uh, sports, music, social issues, pretty awesome stuff. They've got um, some really interesting local content producers as well with a range of viewing suitable for all age groups, including some Academy Award-winning stuff and some um, real interesting festival favorites and cult hits. So have a look at what they've got available over at DocPlay, D-O-C-P-L-A-Y.com. And you can enter for this via the Triple R website. So just have a look there. There's one Double pass for six months available. Now, I have our next guest on the line. Uh, I believe her name is Lisa Rouette. Can you hear me, Lisa? Yes, I can. Hi, Shane. Excellent. Good to talk to you. We we almost had a snafu about technology there, but we sorted it out, which is great. Now, um, you're you're a bit of an out-of-the-box guest for us because you're doing something really unusual and something that uh, is related to one of the guests we've had in the the past, which, of course, is the amazing Jane Goodall. Um, Now, you're an artist, right? Tell us a bit about what you're up to. Yeah, I'm an artist. Um, I've had the for 30 years. I've been working with the subject of primates as mm. my 
as the impetus for the work that I do. So Jane was obviously part of that um, influence from, from very early childhood and um, she's, I've worked with her on a couple of other things over the years and her board um, contacted me a couple of years ago to suggest that I do a big project for her upcoming anniversary, which is this year, 60-year anniversary. Mm. I mean, her work is amazing and, and I mean, she's just, uh, uh, you, you've had some discussions with her, as have I, and she's just one of the most extraordinary people to talk to. Um, g- just give us a feel of your interactions with her because I know you've interviewed her as as well. I mean, what were your impressions? Sorry, you just cut out. Oh. It's very windy here. I might move. So, sorry, Lisa. Yeah, um, I was just saying, what, what were your impressions of Jane? I mean, you've interacted with her as well. Tell, tell us what that was like for you. I think we're losing Lisa there, folks. Oh, dear. There's no connection. Oh, okay. Oh, here we go. Getting better now. Bit better. All right, Lisa, tell us a bit about, uh, we'll give one more try. How, how, did, how did you go with your interactions with, with Jane? Tell us a bit about that. Well, folks, sometimes... Well, the, the, the project is... Yeah, it's not working. Nah. Well, folks, sometimes the technology uh, fails us and it just so happens that this is one of those times. But uh, that's all right because we've got plenty of other things to talk about on the show today. Um, One of the things that I found really interesting I was reading up about during uh, the last week was uh, some researchers looking at how the way in which we were all coping with this pandemic depended on what films we were watching. So if you're a fan of horror films or apocalyptic films, folks, that may have actually prepared you better, or you may have been selected uh, by those films as people who can handle it early on. But either way, there's some um, research going on at the University of Chicago at... um, and Pennsylvania State University where they've been looking at how many people have been exposed over their you know, last few years to sort of end-of-the-world type movies and whether or not there was a degree of resilience that built up as a result of them seeing those films. And it's fascinating because what they've found was that uh, those who had watched a lot of these films is in their sort of you know, common weekly viewing um, seemed to show much greater resilience and less uh, anxiety than those who hadn't with regards to some of the issues happening with the pandemic. Now, of course, it's, it's nice and easy just to link these two things. And of course, they only did it to a group of about 126 people. But um, what I think is fascinating is whether or not the sorts of people who watch those sorts of films all the time um, are sort of pre-selecting in a way. So is it because you watch the films that you're resilient or do you kind of like watching that sort of stuff and so this sort of stuff doesn't surprise you? We, we all know that we do get um, a bit of a, uh, not, not so much education, but we do become... Uh, sort of overexposed to some of these themes at times and then when we actually see them um, especially if those themes are well uh, very well articulated in what we watch when we see the real versions they don't seem shocking because we seem to have been exposed to them beforehand but uh, yeah not suggesting you watch a lot of horror films over the next few days to make yourself feel better but um, it seems as though some researchers are looking into that in detail now one of the other things that I wanted to mention today was something I hadn't come across before is this issue of what are called slow earthquakes so this is really interesting Um, there is a lot of discussion at the moment amongst seismologists as to whether or not 
earthquakes are stochastic, meaning just completely random, or whether or not they can be predicted. So they're deterministic. So with deterministic systems, that would mean you would have enough information uh, by doing measurements and and studying uh, the fault lines and so forth to eventually be able to actually predict uh, earthquakes with some degree of reliability. But of course, if the process is completely random or stochastic, that means that no matter how much information you have, you'll never actually be able to predict uh, earthquakes. And this is really really uh, at the core at the moment of seismology. And in fact, we know that any uh, attempts to really do predictive work uh, can be problematic. And many of you will have heard of the um, Italian seismologists from L'Aquila, the city that was um, very badly damaged and several hundred people died. Those seismologists ended up um, being convicted of manslaughter several years ago. They've been released now, but they had to go to jail because they were part of a committee Um, with a government spokesman and that government spokesman made some comments which uh, according to the legal system in the country meant that people were less likely to do the things they would normally do if the ground started shaking. So essentially that politician made some comments that uh, made people feel inappropriately safe Uh, and the information from seismologists was in a way misinterpreted. And what they were really saying is they didn't know. And that was not the message that got out there. And a number of individuals apparently didn't follow what they'd been trained to do since being young children. And as a result of that, um, they died. So it's a very, very tricky area. And it's one where um, a lot of money and work is is being spent. But uh, these things are very hard to predict. However, Um, Some seismologists at the moment um, from Caltech in the US have been working on these things called slow slip events. So we all know about these scenarios where you you feel an earthquake and these are these are major events where um, the tectonic plates are moving relative to one another and we get these big 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 shifts um, sometimes in under the, the water in the oceans sometimes on the land they're all several kilometers you know below the surface of the earth but we feel those effects very substantially um, the interesting thing being done at the moment though by these seismologists at Caltech is they're looking at the what are called slow slip events. These are essentially like very, very small earthquakes. They're basically not um, perceivable by us. And they're very, very hard to measure. And it's only um, with the advent of far more precise GPS systems and measuring equipment that they've actually been able to start looking at these. And what they've found is it seems as though uh, they may actually be able to start doing predictions. Now, just think about what's required for predictions of any sort of scientific um, item. It doesn't matter what it is. You need a number of data points. Now, the issue with many large earthquakes is you just don't have enough data points. So if you think about how often a major earthquake has happened in San Francisco in the last 50 years when we've had really good equipment to measure them, the answer is not very often. Now, you need a lot of data points to start doing predictions. One of the amazing things about these um, slow slip events is that you get hundreds of them happening over a 10-year period. So they don't have the the damaging impact that normal earthquakes have, but they do um, release energy from the tectonic plate stresses, and they are measurable um, using very sophisticated equipment, 
And because there are so many of them, you can start to build up a database of what's going on. And so if you do the research for 10 years, which for most normal earthquakes is an insignificant amount of time relative to geological timescales, you can, with these sorts of very small earthquakes, actually build up a lot of a lot of data. And it allows them to then start doing the predictive work and determine whether or not these events might actually be part of some sort of system that can be um, predicted. Now, it's unclear at this point as to whether those those systems are linear events or non-linear events, so whether they're you know, easily predictable or not. But it's certainly something that um, is of interest because if you can do it for these sorts of um, very small earthquakes, then there's a possibility that we could also one day do it for major earthquakes. Now, they may not be related in the way they work, but um, at least it's a good place to start. And we're starting to get to that point where um, this this data is actually uh, you know enough because it gives you um, it gives you many data points over a short period of time. So in fact, one way to think of it is that uh, if you take a standard sort of magnitude seven earthquake, which we all know is fairly serious, um, all the energy is uh, say released in about a minute. These slow slip events would actually release a similar amount of energy, um, but it would occur over weeks. So just think about that. You're spreading out the damage over many, many weeks. And it, and it's not even – at that point, it's so spread out and uh, over time that you don't even feel it. And in fact, you need very, very sophisticated equipment to be able to measure it. So a really interesting type of um, geological – thing that's happening there that uh, we've only just been able to start looking at recently with the advent of new technology. But uh, the team at uh, Caltech are doing some very interesting work there. They're looking in the Pacific Northwest at some of these um, essentially non, um, non-detectable non tremors that have been going on for many, many years. And it's not surprising that some of these small things occur, I suppose. So something that we will keep an eye on very interesting uh, ongoing work now folks uh we're almost out of time here on einstein and gogo we are we were hoping there to talk to Lisa about she's doing some amazing sculpture work um, related to the work of Jane Goodall and there is a, um, a sculptor there she's working on called David Greybeard and I think there's an ex- exhibit of all this coming up and that will be very exciting so if you um, Google David Greybeard hopefully you'll find something out about that but um, I have to hand over to the amazing team from Edit in a few minutes uh, and there's Cam walking around here at the station a little bit earlier we are uh, in a situation where if at all possible folks uh, try wearing a mask uh, some of you will remember a little girl we interviewed uh, for primary immunodeficiencies uh, day earlier in the year named may um, she sent me a picture of herself wearing a mask during the week and said, could everyone please do it because her immune system doesn't work and even though we might not need it necessarily to protect ourselves if we're good and healthy and relatively young, um, we certainly need to do our best to be um, protecting people like her who don't have the option of, um, of getting this and, and surviving. It's, it's a very, very serious problem for people who have immune systems that are compromised in any way, shape or form or even people who have other cardiovascular or other conditions that put them at higher risk so uh i wore mine this morning to uh, the supermarket i was the only one disturbingly which bothered me 
Um, but nevertheless, uh, I think if we can, the more of us that do it, the more we encourage others to do it as well. So get on board if you can. Uh, I already know that the Triple R community is community-minded, so um, we would appreciate that. We have some amazing guests coming up in the next few weeks and some really special things coming up for the program. And of course, Radiothon's not that far away. Until next week, though, I'll say goodbye. I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere. And please stay tuned now for Eat It. Um, it's a great time of the day. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein A Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein A Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.